0: Welcome to the Heroes at Home podcast, where we believe heroes can thrive both at work and at home. This podcast is for those who stand watch while we sleep, who run into buildings while others run out, for those who deploy to hard places to have hard fights, and for the families that support them. Through candid conversation, we will discuss the side of things that don't get glorified in the media, what happens when they come home. We'll be talking with heroes from all walks of life and their partners, children, friends, and beyond so together, we can build a stronger family. I'm Noel Metter, CEO, joined by my co-host, Kenny Thomas. Today on our podcast, we have an amazing guest who's going to be sharing Her story, because while maybe she never has worn the badge or put on the uniform, I can promise you what she has walked through. Any one of us who has served this country would say she's absolutely a hero. And I think not only that, but her story will impact so many in terms of what you're going to hear. And I can say that because I've actually heard her story at a conference recently. I was introduced to Dana Jackson truly remarkable story of just her journey. And I don't want to steal anything from your uh, opportunity to share, but Dana, thank you so much for joining us and look forward to having you share what happened over the course of your husband's career in law enforcement.
1: Yes. Thank you so much for this opportunity. It was awesome meeting you as well at this first responder conference that we did in Georgia with all the resource partners. So I was very honored that you guys came up and talked to me after and asked me to share again. A little bit about who I am. I am a mother of two. I have a son who is a new college graduate. I have a daughter in high school. I am a consultant for an insurance company, just riveting, exciting work. (laughs) (laughs) And I would describe myself, I think we have a slide for it too, as a little bit of an overly caffeinated 80s music loving, go to church on Sunday, but sometimes cuss a little bit type of a person. So that's just a little bit about who I am. But thank you so much for letting me be here.
0: Oh, I love it, and actually, I love this slide. I mean, you you captured the whole room when you shared this because in many regards, I mean, we all know Starbucks, but the fact that you have these lined up, you know it just kind of covers the basis of uh, so brilliant, love it, and uh, yeah, so tell me the journey that you've been on absolutely is one that not everyone can say that they've experienced, but I think in the back of the the mind of a first responder and a spouse of a first responder, there's inherently this kind of question, is he or she going to be okay, based on what they're asked to do on a day-to-day basis. And so maybe just starting there, can you tell me a little bit about your guys' story and what that's looked like?
1: Yes. The kind of the end of this particular slide, too, which, by the way, is a legit slide of my desk at work. So this is not clip art. This is my morning coffee, afternoon iced tea. And then I try and remind myself to push some water. The other descriptor, besides being mother of two, working for an insurance company, another adjective that would describe me is widow. And that's just kind of part of my story in the first responder Realm, And so what I will probably just start with is a little bit about uh, my late husband's story. Eric and I actually met, we were 19, just, you know, fresh out of high school. And I would probably describe him as somebody just extremely strong, uh, physically strong. He also had a passion for bodybuilding. Um, In fact, we joked when uh, we first started dating, the joke was that um, he had smoother legs than I did because for the bodybuilding world, it's all about shaving and an extreme tan, but sensitive heart, strong build, a little bit of a mama's boy, which will kind of come into play a little bit later in the story. In those early years of us dating, he went on a ride along. And as a lot of people who kind of have a passion for law enforcement, it was very easy. It was a very easy bug to catch for him after doing the ride along. And so he participated in his department's reserve program. And so he did that while going to school. And kind of learned a little bit of the ins and the outs. And then a position came open for patrol, which he applied for and got. And within that first year of hiring, they will place you with an FTO, with a field training officer. And he had gone on a couple calls and he came home one day and said, you know, I'm seeing a lot of things that I'm having difficulty processing. And so we talked about it a little bit and I thought, gosh, you know, even at at our age at the time, you know, he was kind of able to do a little bit of a mental health check in, kind of check himself. And I think the fact that he does have, did have a sensitive heart, it was difficult for him. And so he talked to his coach and talked to myself and his parents and he said, I, I don't know that this profession is going to be for me. I'm not sure if I'm going to be able to, to process it. And so he went in and said, you know, I I think I'm going to need to not do this. And it turns out that they didn't want to lose him. And they had a position within the department called a CSO, which was a community service officer. So basically still within the department, but you're not out on patrol, um, you're not carrying a weapon. And so he moved into that which was amazing and completely where he needed to be and thrived in it, loved it, went out and, you know, served subpoenas, helped with property crimes, lodging, you know, going out and getting stolen bikes and throwing them in his patrol truck. So all of that was great. He would do that, we would get married, we'd kind of both start our careers, you know, kind of take that role. But in 2001, he was in his patrol truck. It's just a small, vehicle, small truck with a light bar going across. And he was kind of in the downtown area of our city, um, heading to wherever they needed him. And he was approaching an overpass. So he was kind of entering, getting ready to go up this, and realized in a split second that a city bus was coming down the overpass and was turning when it shouldn't be turning because Eric had the right of way. And what resulted in that was I got a call. Our son was almost one and I got a call at home. It was a Sunday from one of the captains who said, I need you to meet me at the hospital. Eric is okay, but he's been in an accident. So luckily my friend was in town. I was able to leave our son with her and head over there. And what had happened is this bus had turned. They had a, um, solid green. They did not have an arrow. So the bus didn't do the right thing. Basically turned right into his driver's door. So a full-on side swipe. And that resulted in, as he tried to correct and turn away from the bus in that split second, the steering wheel would fold around his arm as he was turning. It folded around his arm like a taco. Um, All of the the steel or the metal from the... And as he turned, it would literally rip the bicep straight off the bone from him. And what was interesting is that that would be the smallest of his injuries from that day. And so really bad, Back injury, two herniated discs, one in upper and one in lower back, both inoperable. He would have been 31, I think, at the time when this happened. So even though he was meeting with doctors, no one would operate due to his age because he would have had to have discs removed and he wouldn't have been able to sit or stand straight or lift our child. That on the job accident would start Eric on quite a journey because just like with anything else, when there are injuries, there is medication. There's doctor's appointments, everything that goes with that. And I would say there was not, for Eric and for me as his spouse, there was no modality left off the table that was not tried over the years, especially in the early years of the injury. He was obviously off work for a period of time. He had tried acupuncture, acupressure, chiropractic massage. Uh, He had been referred to a pain clinic for pain management with pain medication um, that became a pretty big roller coaster in our life of on pain meds and off pain meds. And when he would go off pain meds, it was because he was so Mad at himself for having to be on them and irritated and stubborn, um, which I have learned over the course of all the decades, especially in that profession. You know, it's very type A and things need to be in order. And he didn't like that he needed to take medication to be able to get through a day. So when he would go off, as smart as he was, he would not wean himself off and he would cold turkey, which would result in being, you know, in convulsions on the floor. And it was a lot. It was just, it was a lot. His pain journey and One of the things that I would think that that period of time probably taught us is he was trying to figure out his place. I used to think that later on in his story is when he would start to lose his identity. But it was interesting because in one of my counseling sessions, I had my therapist say, you know, I feel like his loss of identity happened at the accident. Because just like anything in life for anybody, we have those defining moments that kind of draw the line in the sand and then it becomes the before and the after. And for Eric and ultimately for our family, his accident on the job would become a before and an after for us, for sure. As he was trying to navigate pain medication and chronic pain, because that's what it would turn into. In the meantime, we had another child. He would go back and go to school in the evenings and get a master's degree. He was also um, teaching at the local community college, teaching intro to criminal justice. He was very cranial, very academic, and that would lead into him becoming part of the police union for him. And so early on, they had a position open, I think it was as treasurer, and that's kind of how he got his foot in the door. And then he realized um, he had a passion for helping his coworkers. And he would become part of this executive board with the other members of the union and try and be part of arbitrations and unfair labor practices and all of the things, um, be able to work with the chief and have conversations over that. And he was really good at it and and got a lot of accolades for it. And he would eventually work his way up um, and become the union president, which is what he was until a short time prior to his death. And so big ride big, big ride of chronic pain and uh, pain management and pain pills and being on and off with all of the things that still happen in a family with children. One of the things that was interesting for us is we had heard about a study that was being done at a place called uh, Neurospine and it was for people who had back injuries. And Eric was accepted into this program where they took, I believe, 10 people. And it was a blind study. So five of the candidates were going to have a device surgically implanted into their uh, back. And the other five were going to get a placebo of the device. Um, None of the candidates knowing if they had gotten the real thing or not. And this particular device was supposed to help send, um, stimulate signals to the brain to not be in pain. And we were kind of at a point in Eric's pain journey um, with his chronic pain that it was almost where you are willing to try anything you can. Because as you know, if you've ever even just slightly pulled your back or had a rib out of place and it takes your breath, even just reaching in a kitchen cupboard, I would always try and remind myself that um, I know how bad that hurts, but I can't even fathom what that is like every day of your life when you wake up. So kind of jumped into this double blind study almost with the understanding like it it can't hurt. I mean, if, if anything, maybe we'll get a little bit of relief for him. And so he did this and it came with one year of intense physical therapy, recorded all of the things with range of motion and whatnot. And then at the end of the year, we got to go back in and meet with the surgeon and kind of open the mystery envelope and find out, did you get the real thing or not? And I remember meeting him in the parking lot that day. I went, I think it was on my lunch break, and we were going to walk in together. And I remember grabbing his hand and looking at him and saying, well, you know, here it is. What do you think? What does your gut say? And I remember him looking at me, and you'll have to pardon the language, but to be real, he said, I got the real thing, and it didn't do a fucking thing. That's what I think. And I remember just kind of squeezing his hand as we walked into the clinic and we went in and we met with the surgeon. He was 100% right. And that scene for me in the surgeon's office plays through my mind a little bit like um, a movie clip. You know, it's the sliding of the envelope, a little bit slow motion. The surgeon, because he didn't know, it was a double-blind study, actually. He didn't know who got the real and who didn't. And I remember when he even opened the envelope and it was just kind of the collective. You could feel the breath of all three of us kind of come out. In the room and then pretty much everything that was said after the you did get the real one everything else from there was charlie brown's teacher we, i don't really remember a lot of that i remember we left and it was april of 13 and that would become the very start of eric's year of darkness and him just kind of going down his path the slide that um, is going to be put up that you might be seeing is the one with the game operation with a picture of someone in bed and a pill bottle. And I would like to say that one of the things with Eric being on and off a lot of medication and a lot of different medication, I mean, from the time the accident happened in 2001 until his death, he was on a myriad of, of different things. Oxy would be one that came in late in the game and that along with the news that we got from the back surgeon is kind of what started having the walls close in. I will back up to, I'm sorry, one thing that I forgot to mention is about a year before or right after his back surgery, within eight months, he tore his rotator cuff, not work related, and had shoulder surgery. And so he had two procedures done eight months apart. And that means two surgeons, two different surgeons, two different body parts. And we had some cross prescribing going on because he had medication for each injury. That, for me as his wife, looking back, when you're in it, you can't see it, right? Because you were just hamster on the wheel. You're living your life. You're raising your kids. You're trying to take care of your spouse. You're going to work. Being on this side of it, and when you go back and you want to connect dots and you want to wrap your head around things and figure out how everything happened and why, I look back on that and think, hmm, that's... When myself and other family members probably really could see the biggest change, um, there was a chemical change. It's it's just no, it's science at this point. You know, he had meds going for his shoulder, he had meds going for his back. Whether they played well in his system or not didn't matter. But when oxy showed up, that would change the course. That would change the course of what he had left for his life.
0: I think all of us collectively just you know take a deep breath because this is a lot to digest in, in one, in one episode, uh, especially for you. And, and, and I know that the time on this has been how many years
1: this uh, year will be nine years.
0: And I just want to say, Dana, thank you. I mean, the willingness and then the courage to come and share, even though it's been nine years, I'm sure it feels like yesterday when you are sharing this experience and what you guys have walked through. Yeah. My heart just, my heart goes out to you, goes out to your family. For me, I think the question, you know, obviously this was a journey from the time of the, him saying yes to law enforcement to, you know, that year of just kind of everything going black. Were you seeing signs and symptoms of him, you know, really struggling and, and obviously there's the pain aspect of it, but mentally, I guess what I kind of dig in there for a moment, what did you see going on on that front?
1: Yeah, definitely a huge shift mentally, both from a medication perspective and the whole being on and off and the way he would go on and off um, over the years, I know was jolting to his system. I know his brain chemistry was forever altered and changed because of a lot of that. His year, what we in the family kind of consider to be his year of darkness after finding out about the back surgery not happening, he was in bed a lot. And so if he wasn't working, he would be in bed. And when I think about the ages of our children at the time, our son uh, was and still very is into sports. And that was something that, you know, him and his dad would watch sports a lot. And it became watching NFL games and NBA games in bed. And it became a let's pop popcorn, let's get chips and we're in bed. It was how can we kind of still live our life or family life, but it, it became very different. And for Eric being in bed, was his way of escaping his pain. And we would talk about that. We would talk about that quite a bit. And the way I would liken it or tell my friends or family about it is, you know, it's kind of like when you're sick or you have a cold, or you have the flu and you just feel gross and yucky, right? And you just want to fast forward to the point where you don't have a sore throat or you can breathe out both of your nostrils, right? But when you're sleeping, you're not thinking about it right? You're getting some sleep. You're taking your cold meds. You're doing whatever. You're taking a nap and you're sleeping. So for Eric, and he would verbally tell me this, the only time I don't hurt is when I sleep. But the sleeping and the being in bed became very unhealthy. Unhealthy to the point where I enlisted the help of his parents at one point to come over and and just, you know, have some really good pointed discussions on we love you and we need you to feel better, and we will do whatever we can to help that. But the being in bed was also a way of detaching. And I look back, and that is slowly as he was letting go, when we talk about things like loss of identity, that's when it was happening. The constantly being in bed, and not being able to participate in daily life had a couple of different avenues for that, because it definitely impacted work and work was noticing. And then when he wasn't feeling well, he was over-medicating at one point and was definitely not himself in his union position. Uh, and his co-workers were noticing very uncharacteristic things of Eric and who he was and how he would handle himself when he was well. Um, and it led to him losing the, the presidency for the union, which was gut-wrenching for his friends and co-workers to have to make that Call. And that was probably about a month before he died. And I know that, you know, for him, his walls were closing in. He was losing who he thought he was, all the things that he used to be able to contribute to and felt like he couldn't. So work started slowly being let go of and not caring and just being in bed. That impacted home life. He would start letting go slowly of just being able to participate. He stopped going to church with us as a family several months prior to that, you know? So, I mean, he, he let go in stages before the day he died. He, he, there were, there were components of him letting go along the way, but, um, yeah, in bed a lot. And then the, the day I got the call, I mean, it was just that day will never, that's ingrained in me. That is burned in me like a, like a cattle brand. He had been, after he had lost the union position, rightfully so, I mean, he, he was not well and he was not in a position to make decisions for the department in that aspect. He took FMLA. He, he couldn't cope. In hindsight, that FMLA, it was spent in bed. I think he was just done. I'm not sure that, you know, bringing up counseling again, it, medication, all the things, it, it had felt at that point as though every every stone had been turned over looking for an answer. Meanwhile, we have a family in motion. We have kids um, who are busy, who are active. So much stuff going on. So he had been on leave and he was due to go back. His 30 day FMLA was over. I overheard him on a phone call the night before with a friend and coworker, kind of talking about coming back and a little bit excited. So the next day uh, I get up, I go to work, kids get off where they need to go. I start getting calls and texts that he he didn't show up for work. I look back and I think I knew probably right then, but it's just so interesting when you look, of course, all the studies that have been done on fight or flight, right? And you go into shock, right? And so the way that I am built as a person and having gone through loss with parents and, and all this other stuff is I go into business mode. So I go full business. And the emotional part gets put on the back burner and I will deal with that later because there is stuff to be done and I have to help somebody, whether it's kids, family, whatever. So I start getting these texts and calls. He's not here. He's not answering his phone. We want to ping his location, okay? So I leave work and I had just gotten out of a meeting. I leave work and I just start driving around. But looking back on it, I was driving aimlessly. It was very odd. I had just, I drove to a local park that was not far from police headquarters because just a few weeks or a month prior, there was a local businessman, pretty prominent businessman, that had taken his life. And I don't know why at that park, I, I don't know why I drove there. But while I was in the parking lot, kind of driving around, and again, he's not taking anyone's calls, I get a call from one of his best friends that he worked with very closely in the union. And he said, where are you? And I told him, and he said, I need you to get to headquarters now. And it was like, I'm not even a mile away. And I so I drove, not knowing anything, not knowing what I And so in my mind, I think the wife in me was trying to tell myself, he's there. He's not in a good place. You know, they, they're trying to talk to him. I, I think that's why I was telling myself. But I pulled into the parking lot of headquarters, and I saw the person who called me and his wife and someone else, and they were standing outside and unmarked suburban they were waiting for me and so my stomach kind of dropped kind of like when you pass a cop going 90 on the freeway how ironic is that but my stomach kind of dropped out like oh and they motioned for me like okay come on so I went to park well talk about out of body because I drove a jeep at the time I didn't put it in park and so I pulled into the parking space and then I just opened my door and started, and, and my car kept rolling and it went up onto the curb and I had to get back in. and Cause I just, it was very, again, kind of like a scene in a movie, just very discombobulated. So I got in the back seat with his friends. There's good friends of ours, wife and two gentlemen were in the front and I could hear them talking about what is the fastest route to the hospital. Cause they were in shock themselves. And I have no idea what type of call or how they got their call, but they would take me to the hospital And I remember being in the back seat and I kept leaning my head on the window and pulling my hair kind of in front of me. I was trying to hide. I I don't know, it was very strange. And I think I remember saying, what do we know what's happening? Is he okay? And no one really wanting to say anything because no one knew what to say and got to the hospital. And uh, they escort me to a room behind the ER. We had to go through the ER and it was a windowless room I mean, these are the things in my grief and in my shock. This is kind of what sticks in my brain. So windowless room, wicker, furniture, kind of old school. And uh, it's just me and his two coworkers and her wife. And our friend's wife said, can I have your phone? I'm going to make some calls for you um, if needed. And I said, okay. And just then the uh, doctor came in, white coat. Again, I know I keep referencing, it's like a movie, but if they ever made a movie about this, like I, it, it is how it felt and came in with the, um, you know, uh, your husband came in with a gunshot wound to the heart. Our team tried everything and we were not successful and I am so sorry. And I was just like, okay, I, I. I probably can't really describe how I acted in that moment because I don't really know. And that's when our friend took my phone, made some calls, got a hold of his mom, and people started showing up. And then our room became full. Our son came with my mother-in-law. Luckily, my daughter was able to stay with family for a couple days because at the time, our kids were 13 and 6. I mean, we're talking kindergarten and 8th grade. So it was definitely a lot to process on pretty much every level possible but on that day his walls closed in he was he was i think he felt like work was no longer and he didn't feel like he could contribute at the level he was used to contributing i think he felt that way from a family perspective i know that there's times where people so much when it comes to this topic of suicide will say it's selfish and there's definitely two two camps in that thought process, right? I'm not in that camp because I lived it. He was the least selfish person you would have ever met. He was the most giving, smart. When I think of the the pain pill addiction, the on and off roller coaster that he experienced, that we experienced as a family, we had a front row seat to what that looks like, right? And so when you hear things like addiction, it's so easy for the the thought process to think of the drug addict on the street with the track marks and the needles or the alcoholic who can't even stand up straight in a room. That was not my husband, but it doesn't mean that he didn't struggle. Uh, he did go through a treatment center um, probably about six months prior and he had asked for help and he just said, I just, I can't handle the way I feel. I can't cope anymore. I can't contribute. I'm, I'm not myself. There's something wrong. And so The treatment center was the easiest way to take care of that, to do a full-on doctor-guided medical detox to get everything out, and it was amazing. I mean, talk about seeing the light in someone's eyes, I think, when people talk about death. And especially when they talk about suicide, especially in our case, his light dimmed, especially over that last year. And he became a shell of who he was. But his treatment program brought that back. I mean, we would go visit him and it was like, oh my gosh, like once he was able to get everything out of his system, it was like, he's back. It didn't last. He, he came out and, and couldn't cope. He could not. I would come home from work at times and it would be just daytime and he would drink NyQuil. Because again, it all would tie back to sleep, right? So it wasn't like this addict who couldn't wait to get his fix. It was someone who couldn't wait to escape his pain. And ultimately yeah. in 2014, he made a, a, a horrible choice and a horrible decision on a way to be out of that. But it was not selfish at all.
0: Yeah, I'm so glad that you brought that up because I think that is something that there are two camps, like you describe it. Many would, you know, potentially leaning on and not knowing the situation kind of the quick, easy references, it was the selfish, right? That last, but, but when you, when you start to peel back the layers and I've had conversations like this with others who've walked the journey of suicide, you just start to realize that so many of the legs of support that we just take for granted had been, you know, kicked out from underneath them. Right. I mean, you're talking about identity with work. You're talking about medically trying every last thing that's on the table, right? And then that's not working. I mean, you just, you start going down the list of things that, from a psychological standpoint, you know, you you start to see yourself as, oh, I'm a burden on the family. I'm a burden on, you know what I mean? There's all those kind of mental places that it goes. But what I continue to come back to is many of these stories, these are individuals who, the way I would describe them is warriors. They were fighters. I mean, think about f- leaning in and continuing to contend. I mean, <laughs> I have a back spasm and I'm out for a day and I'm like, oh my gosh, it's so bad. I can't even imagine year upon year. I mean, just the anguish of that alone. And ultimately, like I, I think the way you describe this, the walls coming in, that hopelessness of there is no option to ever be to be able to live life, right? Like actually live life. And so I'm thankful for that you address that because I think sometimes that can be a negative spin on this. And yet, I mean, as you described him. What an amazing man that, you know, to continue to fight, fight for not only his being able to get through this, this pain, but also fight for the family. I want to come back to just, you know, as you saw the walls closing in, what was going through your mind? Like, I know that, you know, you're, you're trying to navigate this and with a family and work and all that, but what what was going through your mind? I mean, were you kind of cognizant of, yeah, this is probably going to end in a really bad place? Or was it, no, we're going to, I'm not going to give up on the hope that there potentially is a treatment out there. I'm just, I'm just curious.
1: Yeah. For us with our story and our family, and I I definitely get asked that people are very cautious and gingerly on how they ask, you know, that's usually a very common question is, were there signs? Eric's signs were pretty prominent just because his chronic pain journey was very, um, front burner. I mean, it, it was a daily, thing. And we would get asked, especially going to my son's sporting events and games. And so we, you know, had these bonds with these families and everyone would always, you know, well, oh, where's Eric? And, you know, he, you know, it's not that he was embarrassed of it, but it's like, he, he can't, he can't be there. You know, he, he would try and he, he would wake up and be like, it's not happening. And I'm not able to drive because I'm going to have to take pain, medication, whatever it was. So there were signs, but when you ask from my perspective is what I would say is we had a family in motion, right? And our family's always been in motion. I think anyone who has children knows that there's, downtime is kind of non-existent, right? We were a family in motion, things had to be done, right? The bills had to be paid, the grocery shopping had to be done. There were so many things going on that make up just a family dynamic. And the more he could not participate in that, totally added to his guilt, Right. He felt horrible. So it isn't, you know, sometimes I think to myself, wow, it would almost be easier to be able to be angry. I get asked that question a lot. Like, oh my gosh, are you just so mad that he left? I, would you be angry at someone who has cancer? Like I put this in the same realm. That is my Mm -hmm. own opinion. And I'm sure there would be Mm -hmm. people that would debate that. But my husband was sick. Okay. He was mentally sick. He was physically in pain for 13 years. I was not angry. I am not angry. I don't look at it as like, how dare you, you left us. I look at it as, oh my word, he couldn't wait to get to heaven. I know that because I know that about him, but the signs were there as far as him disconnecting and not being able to be part of just daily life. That being said, I kind of had to, I kind of had to go into single mom mode. It's really hard to say that out loud because there is a difference between single mom and solo mom. And I became a solo mom in 2014. And the difference being a solo mom, my kids don't have a dad to go to every other weekend or dad isn't on the other side of the gym watching their games. Um, It's all me 24-7. But I think in Eric's illness, especially in his last year, I was a single mom and it, it prepped me for the role I didn't know was waiting. And that was, that was difficult, but just trying to balance it and try and figure out because the kids had to get to school. Like they, they had to go to their things. They had sleepovers. I had a ton of support and that support would totally roll into my widow journey. Eric's family is amazing. I can't say enough about them. My, my sister-in-law um, stepped up and, and completely took the reins on a lot of stuff that I just couldn't cope with, especially in those early days. But yeah, yeah, I could see the, the walls closing in, but when you're in it, it is really difficult to know what to do, which I think kind of ties it back to when I was asked to come out and speak to the first responder conference and got to meet you guys, because I thought, wow, when I was prepping for my talk for that conference, I remember thinking, I'm going to have an entire room of first responders. I think there was like, I don't know, 150, maybe more, fire, police, dispatch, EMTs. And I thought, I'm going to have a room full of Erics, right? People in all aspects of their journeys, of their careers, right? Newbies, rookies, people on the cusp of retirement. I bet you there's people in the room that have back problems or have had work injuries. And I'm going to have this captive audience. And here I am, the widow, what could I possibly say to these people? What would I want to say to an Eric if I rolled the clock back and he had to go to an in-service training, you know, 10 years ago? What would I have wanted him to hear that could have made a difference? And I think it just, for me, it just came back to finding your support and finding your community, but more importantly, that it's okay to talk about stuff. And I know that that's a huge shift right now for mental health within our world is it's being, you know, I don't like the cliche phrases. They drive me crazy. You know, it's okay to not be okay. But there's truth behind that, you know? And when you talk to somebody, I think my whole thing is just not everybody's meant for counseling and therapy. I am. I'm over-caffeinated. I could go three days a week to see my therapist. It's amazing. It doesn't have to be a counselor. You could talk to a friend, a pastor, a neighbor. You talk to your dog, but it needs to come out. And I think in the first responder world, because there is so much put on them and it's because it's their role, it's their presence, right? It's this big, you know, big position that it's so easy to just stuff it and not talk about it and not come home and think, okay, well, I can't come home and tell my wife at the dinner table about this horrendous thing I saw today because I have kids and it's going to scare them. Okay. But you can kind of table that. And wait till the kids go to bed or get a coffee date and say, I just saw some things and I'm just really having a hard time processing them. And it doesn't mean you have to solve it, but you have to say it. It needs to come out. And I think from a first responder community, I think it's pretty hard. They're so used to being the first on the scene and responding to everyone else that they forget to respond to themselves. So that was pretty much my message, at least when I went to Georgia, is you know, put yourself first. There's nothing selfish in that, but you have to take care of yourself before someone else can take care of you. And I think that's where our, our situation and our, it got so bad towards the end that, you know, I'm not sure. I feel like I lived my vows to the, the day that he made that decision. We, we were together for 26 years. So this wasn't a, an argument gone awry. I mean, this was over time and being worn down and being tired and and being ready to be done with his pain.
0: Let's go back to that moment where the doctor comes in and it sounds like from your recollection, it's like I don't really remember what happened. Many people handle this differently. For you, what was the path forward? For those who maybe are listening who have lost, you know, a loved one by suicide, and maybe this is fresh and new, that's a daunting situation, right? Like I don't know how to get out of this this dark cloud that's you know constantly hanging around and and that's just one way to describe it right there's a lot of different ways to describe it but for you personally what did that look like
1: for me being on this side of it and looking back i would label at least the first year i call it being in the um the grief bubble Right. So the, the numb bubble. So the first year, even though you're going through all your first, the first birthdays that are getting missed, the first holidays without the person, they hurt and they sting. But you're still wrapped up into being in shock. Right. And it's just amazing from the science part how that your body protects you. And there are things that just won't stick and commit. And to this day, even part of my PTSD from our whole scenario is I have asked over and over about the weapon and I, I get told about it. And I, it will not stick in my brain. And I think that's just my body's way of saying, you don't need to, it's okay. I can ask about it. And unless I write it down, and I don't even know why that matters, but it, it just goes to show how your body just takes over at that point. But I would say from the time the doctor came in going forward, you're in massive shock. Like I said, luckily, I, I had a, a support system holding me up, but that support system, especially the close circle of family- everyone was impacted. Right. So I can't sit there and just say, Oh my gosh, you know, my, my sister-in-law and brother-in-law and my in-laws were amazing. Their grief was, was just as palpable, you know? And so here they're trying to help me when really, you know, his brother lost a brother. My mother-in-law lost her son. I mean, it's, it's, it is so raw, especially in those first, first few days, weeks, and months. I would say for me, and we talked about this, I think a little bit before we started recording, but that day for me, even though I've, I've worked, you know, since I was 16, I've always been a a career person. And I always joked that if I ever won the lottery, I would still work. It's just kind of how I'm built. But on that day that he died, my real job was revealed. I mean, it was like a full on shine the flashlight, you know, it's like God saying, okay, well, for the last 45 years on the planet, this is kind of what you've done. But I can tell you from here going forward, your real job are your children. And I knew I would still work because that was a definite, right? No matter what, it's like, oh my gosh, I want to stay in our family home. Like I still need to pay a mortgage and pay bills. But my job became... My mom job was elevated and not in a bad way, like, oh my gosh, Eric, look what, look at this responsibility pile I've been left with. And now I have to do it by myself when I've had a partner for 26 years. And it was a very interesting, I don't know how my brain wrapped it, but I just knew that day, like, okay, I'm still going to work. And my job at the insurance company, I mentally now told myself that is my means to pay my bills, right? So I'm going to go do work. I'm going to get to pay my bills and we're going to stay in our house. But my real job is, are my kids okay? Are we okay? You know, I had a couple people, people say very strange things, okay, in awkward moments. Suicide is an extremely awkward topic. But I think even if Eric had died, you know, like I said, from another illness or whatnot, the things that are said, I had a few people tell me at his service that you know your son and your son is now the man of the house. My son was 13. No, he was not. And that one would sting. Like I I can be pretty sarcastic in nature. Um, and then you kind of wrap that up with some dark widow humor which I have some friends that we can be pretty twisted because it's our life, but I just remember thinking in that moment with you know I am now the mom of these two kids. I am their sole provider. I am their person. It is the three of us. We went from a family of four to a family of three. But my son will get to be a teenage boy. And no, there will not be any impressions of you're the man of the house. Um, It's up to you to make sure mom's okay. No, 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 no. And I knew that early on. And so I almost went completely the opposite direction, kind of in protective mama bear mode of that's not going to happen. You're still going to go play basketball with your friends. You're going to have sleepovers. I will deal with stuff. I mean... We do that as parents, even when there's not a death in the family, right? You don't sit there and tell your eight and 10 year old, you know, mommy and daddy, you're going to sit down and pay bills. You should sit down and watch. It's going to be fun. (laughs) You know, that's not how that works. Those are adult things and you get to be a kid. And my daughter needed to be a kindergartner and a first grader and go to birthday parties and and buy presents and paint her nails and all of those things. I, I know I sound like a broken record. We're a family in motion. It needed to keep going. And so I felt like my biggest responsibility was to make sure we kept going and that we addressed things. We were all in counseling. I got an amazing counselor referred to me from someone within the department who had lost her husband in the line of duty for my kids, got a great counselor. My son learned early on in his teen years why it's important not to stuff feelings and why you have to talk about them. They know that at any time, even now, almost nine years later, if they need to talk, we will get them into someone who needs to talk. It's a very healthy discussion in my opinion, but yeah. So I had to put my head down. I kind of went two years with my head down, full on mom mode. This is my job. This is my role and I'm going to make sure that we are okay. And uh, then that's when my sister-in-law said, okay, it's a couple years in and you're still young and you need to date again. And yeah, that's a whole other story.
0: Yeah. During that two years, how much would you, I mean, the first year sounds like grieving. Second year, would you describe that as something different than grieving?
1: Yeah, the difference between year one and two that you bring up. So one is numb bubble protection mode. Year two, the holidays and the milestones hit and they hurt because now that numb bubble's gone and there's nothing protecting you from really feeling the sting of it milestones were probably the hardest for me more so than a date on a calendar for a birthday you know i remember thinking especially pretty soon after with our son being the age that he was and i remember thinking to myself oh my gosh you know here's my child who is going to try and navigate a first girlfriend and a prom And driving and and he's going to have to do that without his dad. You know, I'm going to have to try and counsel him through things. And he's got body parts I don't have. Like there's a lot going on there. And I just tapped into resources. We've got uncles, we've got, you know, really good friends of theirs, fathers. And I had people making sure that, you know, we were, we were okay. But that difference between year one and two is pretty big. Um, The regret, shame, I didn't feel it. I feel like, and I, and maybe it's because we were together for so long. He was my person since age 19. We learned to adult together. We got married. We waited seven years to have kids. So, I mean, you know, we just did things at a good pace. And so we learned so much about each other and grew up with each other. So I, the shame and the guilt thing didn't hit for me. I think the, the times when I really let myself kind of get into those deeper thoughts, you definitely kind of go more into the, what more could I have done and how, what would that have looked like? You know, how do you do that when you are raising kids and working? Right. So I I don't know. I don't know. I just feel in my heart, we lived our vows to each other until, till the day that, that he was gone. And so I, yeah, it's definitely a journey. I think the other thing that happened for me pretty early on is I, I don't want to say I adopted the mindset because I think it's just how I'm programmed as a person. And I will root that a lot back into how my parents raised me, but I knew very early on, regardless of what happened to me in the future, you know, was I going to date? Was I going to remarry? All of that stuff. What was I going to do to honor my late husband at every turn, not in just ginormous ways and banners and huge Facebook posts, but you know, I wanted to model that for my kids. And so his life needed and still needs to have meant something to all of us because it was impactful for all of us in the family and, and to hear stories from his friends. And I love getting memories from people going, Oh my gosh, I remember this one time when dot, 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 and it brings such a smile. We love to hear their names. And that's another misnomer in widow and widowerhood is that they don't like to hear about, no, it's actually the opposite, but, I try to make sure with myself and our children and Eric's family and anybody who will listen, we do things all throughout the year, not just on special days, things that will honor him or tell stories in my new relationship as it progressed, because I did start dating, we get to talk about him. And it's not in a very odd, you know, he would love to hear stories about Eric and my kids would tell him things. And he has some similarities to my late husband. That's kind of eerie.
0: (laughs) One of the topics that I think, potentially listeners are asking in their minds and I'm just going to put it out there is are there things that when someone, you know, has gone through the trauma that you've gone through and death by suicide, you know, those looking out or looking in, I should say, it's this sense of like, well, how do I support? What do I say? Are there things that would be helpful for folks to consider if, if they're walking with someone through this journey of, you, you kind of already alluded to it. Like well, your son's going to be the man of the house. You know, I stay away from those kind of statements. But are are there ways that you found people being able to come alongside you, and this really helped? What does that look like?
1: Yes, yes, I can totally speak to that. So one of the things, uh, well, there's definitely <laughs> there's definitely a list of things not to say, and I am very fortunate to have quite a community. In a sad way, I have a community of widows, um, local people who have lost their husband. I have a group of law enforcement widows. And so kind of having somebody next to you that says, this happened to me, this happened to me, and you kind of nod your head and go, okay, I don't feel so awkward or alone. But there are definitely things not to say. And one of the things um, I remember very early on that was said to me was, um, uh, did you have any idea? And, it, it came, and I, I know where they were coming from, right? It's kind of the whole thing like when you're on a freeway and you're driving past an accident. Right? You don't want to look, but you look, you feel like it's this gawking, like, oh my gosh, is there anyone still in that car? So I get it. Suicide is a very awkward topic. It's not dinner conversation. You don't walk in a room and go, hey, um, you don't know, no one's going to want to stand by you. So that's just weird in itself. So lots of things not to say. The things to say or the things to do, one of the big things that I very much remember from the first few days, because I had a lot of people at the house A lot of friends come up beside me, stay with me, make sure my kids got where they needed to get or made sure, you know, people are organizing meal trains, so many things. But I remember one of my wonderful friends with all of the people who were coming by for condolences and coming by for hugs to see if we're okay. A lot of people from the department. And my friend had the insight. She put a legal pad Up on my kitchen counter because a lot of people had the same question, which is, What can I do to help? Right? People innately want to help and assist and make it better. And my friend was like, What could you do? And so it's like, Are you good at lawn maintenance? Like, you want to come over once a week and mow the lawn? And so people were writing down their names and cell numbers. And then my friend would call them and just say, I'm going to be here that day. I can unlock the gate. And it wasn't about asking me, hey, Dana, so-and-so would like to come over and move on. Because words, I mean, it sounds silly. Sentences couldn't do it. I mean, you want to talk about the zoning out. I remember just sitting in in a recliner in my living room and my sister-in-law just handing me a cup of tea or handing me a half a sandwich saying, I need you to eat this. It was. It does happen. That is how it is when you're in shock and someone has to remind you to put food Mm -hmm. in your mouth. But this friend knew enough to build a list of tasks. And so I would be home within the first month or two and I would hear something outside and I would look out my window and there would be a ladder up in the front yard and someone was cleaning out my gutters. And I knew who it was, I waved at them and they gave me the very polite head tilt, "Mm, thinking about you, cleaning my gutters. I had a neighbor mowing my lawn. So it was the, um, if you've ever read or heard about the five love languages, I don't know a mom whose love language is not acts of service, (laughs) because I am here to tell you people, it is acts of service. And the acts of service that were taking place within those first few months, I would probably say to anybody who is new in the walk from a support standpoint. So if you have had somebody who has lost someone, it doesn't have to be a suicide, but if, if they are in a grief journey right now, they don't even know how to ask for what they need. That That was the spot I was in. And so to have somebody close to be able to say, okay, things needed to be done. It was April when Eric died. And with that whole year of darkness being just that, Christmas came and went, you know, and I put Christmas up and, and, you know, we had the, we had a artificial tree and all the decorations went up. Well, the decorations finally came down and got put in their totes, right? But they were in the garage from like January or February and they needed to go up in the attic. And so one day I came back, I think it was the day I came back from the funeral home, having to pick out urns. I mean, nobody ever plans for that. And I remember, and I didn't drive myself anywhere those first few days. And I remember getting back home and the garage door going up and all the totes were gone. Well, that was one of the things my friend had put on the list. And another officer came over and hauled six totes up into the attic. And, you know, you step back and you think about that. It probably took that person 20 minutes And it made them feel so good because they just wanted to help. And it's a task, but it's a task that was like Mount Fuji to me. It was not going to happen. And it was so down the list of things that needed to be done. I would have parked my car outside for months if it meant those totes had to stay in the garage because I couldn't physically or mentally wrap my head around it.
0: I love that idea. I mean, how brilliant are your friend? Because so many want to help, but they don't know how to help. And so sometimes the awkwardness is the conversations that are had rather than just knowing that this is what I need. So that's, that's, that's amazing. (laughs) Let's just talk for a moment and and we're just about done here, but I want to hear kind of like the other side of the story, right? There's the, the next chapter of you and your family's life. What does that look like and how did that transition take place?
1: Yeah, that's, um, it's a beautiful chapter. So like I said, my sister-in-law, was definitely one of the rocks right beside me uh, through all of this. And I remember two years in to my widow journey, she came over one night and we opened up a bottle of wine and she's, she's like, I'm setting you up on a dating website. And I remember thinking, no, you're not. Um, But then, you know, (laughs) A glass of Pinot Gris later kind of sounds like a good idea. So she sets up this profile and then we're laughing because I think to myself, she's setting up the profile as her, like with her interests. And I'm like, we are two very different people. And what's so funny is, so I had to take the laptop away from her and fix it. But in reality, the last time I had gone on a first date, I was 19, you know, and now I'm, you know, at 46, I think at the time. So it was very different. And I'm online. I mean, that's not how people met back in the day, not to sound like I'm ready for the nursing home, but my gosh, it was very different. So the profile gets done and, and I have a ton of laughs with the support of my in-laws. It, it was very important for me to, I'm very rooted with Eric's family. They are my family. Um, I mm-hmm. lost my mom before I even had children. And so I'm very, very close to my mother-in-law. And I remember having the conversation with her about possibly being ready to date again. And that was an awkward conversation because I loved their son and I didn't want to hurt them, but had their blessing. And so it was hilarious because I would get these matches and we would be at a family dinner and I would look at my mother-in-law and I'd flip the laptop around. and I'd be like, can you see me bringing him to Thanksgiving? I mean, are you kidding? He has longer hair than me. I'm pretty sure he's standing out in the woods. I mean, hello. No. So there were some really interesting, we had some laughs over it, but then this one person messaged me and I saw his picture and I thought, oh my gosh, someone's kind of interested in me and got a little nervous and read his profile and Uh, He was a little bit older than me. And so I was like, Oh no, I had these just weird boundaries in my head. Like what? I can't do that. I can't do that. So I kind of let him hang in my inbox for a couple of weeks and then had friends and family pretty much tell it to me straight. Like, what are you doing? And, you know, had one friend say, you know, what does it hurt to go to coffee? Dana, you know, pull your head out, let's go. And then I had my, uh, one of my widow friends had a very candid conversation with me over lunch one day because I hadn't responded to this person yet. She looked me in the eyes and said, stop looking for another Eric. You're looking for Eric. And it hit me and I thought, oh my gosh, sometimes you need those friends that can speak the truth to you. And you might not want to hear it, but it was real. And it was like, I was, I was looking for the next, you know, silver haired, all the things, all the qualities. And so anyway, so I reached out to uh, this person and we went out on a date and he's very polar opposite from my late husband and you know he had a harley and i thought oh my gosh look at me i'm just you know living the adventurous lifestyle so anyway it wound up going great and he met my kids and i got to meet his family and uh lo and behold six years later i married him on Mm -hmm. leap day of 2020 right before the world shut down with the pandemic. But he is amazing. He has a passion when he's not working. His passion is woodworking. And so I always joke that, you know, he brought the Gorilla Glue and glued my heart back together. And it, from the get-go has never had an intention and has told my kids that his role is not to replace. It's just to come alongside us. He loves to hear stories about Eric. And it's just been an amazing, this, this chapter with my new husband is, is healing. It's definitely part of, um, my grief walk and I, how fortunate am I at 53 to get to have two great loves. My chapters are very intertwined and very different at the same time. And it's beautiful.
0: Yeah. Wow. You know, I think that's such an important piece to hang on to, you know, the idea that when you met your husband, what, what is your husband's name? If Terry. you're okay, Terry, the, the, perspective that he had that I'm not trying to replace, but I'm trying to come alongside and support. And I want to hear the stories. I mean, he made it available to continue to heal, you know? And I, and I think what I've heard is that there's some that come into a family and it's almost like they want that whole lifetime to be extinct, right? Now let's not talk about it. And the disruption that happens in those families is absolutely chaotic. It's just so hard, you know? So, kudos for finding a good man and
1: I know well he found me I mean I tried to leave him hang for a while I don't, didn't know what I was doing but yeah he definitely doesn't want the the prior years of our family's life extinct it's amazing and he's got an amazing family I've inherited some amazing people in my life because of that and you know it was kind of cool even though we joke about you know our age difference. It's not that big. It's like eight years. But what was cool is when we first started dating is, you know, his children were grown by that point. And so I was really able to kind of lean on him in those early years of dating and really ask him advice and say, you know, you've been there, done that. Like, is this normal for a teenage boy to go through this? Or should my teenage daughter, you know, be acting like this? Did you go through this? And it was very comforting. And he never tried to overstep and say, you should be doing this. You should parent like this. It was, he would always wait to be asked for advice and give it very gingerly. And if you want to act on it, great. So yeah, we've got an an amazing relationship in that aspect. And my, my kids, adore him and go to him for things. And he's, he's available all the time. And it's great that they are going to have going forward and have had over the last six years, the ability to have that figure in their life that is not to replace, but it's definitely, you know, it's something to help with the void, which is amazing. And he's a great person. He, he definitely was a gift in
0: that realm. Yeah. It was amazing. Dana, I just want to say thank you. Thank you for being vulnerable, authentic, the courage of sharing. Uh, obviously the strength that you have as a person is so evident as we've been able to talk through this. I, I know for many, the idea of what you've, the journey you've been on for some, it's like, there's no way. And yet you've, you've been able to share those insights. And so, so one, thank you. Thank you for being a part of this, this podcast and the show. I guess my, my final question to you is what's one thing that you would want our listeners to know that you've taken away from this, from this journey? Like if this is the thing that has probably taught you the most or um, opened your eyes the most or your heart, the most, what is that one thing?
1: Oh boy, there are a lot of things, but I would probably say the the biggest takeaway for me on my journey is giving yourself the grace that's needed to walk the journey and to be willing to walk the journey and not sit it out, right? Not sit on the sidelines that you have to stay in motion, but probably finding your community. And I wish I would have found a community for chronic pain or maybe some type of struggles within law enforcement. I wish I could have found that community in the year of darkness, or maybe even a little bit sooner, because I think that whatever your struggle is, when you find people who are in that trench, you feel less alone. And so I think that was probably my biggest takeaway and what I would, my message would be, whatever it is you're struggling with right now, it's not about, hey, go out and get help. Cause that was kind of like that, taking it back to the chores on the legal pad, right? You don't know what you need because you're so tired, right? You're struggling. There's a reason you're struggling. So when you're struggling, it's not like you're gonna be very proactive to make things happen. So if you're struggling, And you could find someone who either shares in a similar struggle. What would be even better is if you could find someone who's on the other side of that struggle, who has been through it, right? Because those are almost like, they're like elders or mentors. Like, you know, wow, you've done this. And you know, what helped you when you were in the trench? Sometimes you just need somebody to talk that through with you, because I really do feel like it's about feeling less alone. I think it's when we feel alone your next step is isolation, right? Cause nobody understands what I'm going through. That's how you are. That's what you're telling yourself. So yeah, my takeaway would be, um, find a person or a group. Um, so many of the things, I mean, it doesn't even have to be on addiction or, um, it could be depression and anxiety. It could be all of those things, but with so much help being confidential, it's not like we walk around with shirts that say I'm on Wellbutrin cause I struggle or, Um, or, you know, I used to drink a lot, whatever somebody's issue is, we don't walk around and advertise it. So it doesn't have to be made public. It's the biggest service you could do for yourself. Okay. You don't have to tell people, but you could definitely have coffee with that friend and just be a sounding board. And then you'll be surprised because sometimes the sounding board flips and you don't realize you need to vent or you need to get something out. And if there's a safe person you can tell it to, they don't even have to fix it. It's amazing what feels better just to get it out, right? You don't need to offer me the answer, but I just feel better yeah. getting in my car because I got to share how I was feeling about something. That's a big deal.
0: Yeah, wow, so good. Well, thank you again. Thanks for uh, being a part of this and uh, truly remarkable. And you know, we'll just continue to wish the best for your family, for what's, what's happening. But I do think that, the, and we talked about this right before the show, the more we can talk about this stuff, the more it's going to be destigmatized and the more it's going to be an acceptance to say, Hey, we need to have these conversations. And so I think that's my one final note to those who are listening. Don't bottle this stuff up. Make sure that you find someone that you can talk to. There is healing in that there is the release of so many things that I think get compartmentalized stuffed down and bad places end up happening. People go to dark places. I should say in terms of it when it's bottled up. So, keep those conversations going and yeah thanks again dana
1: you're welcome thanks for having me